Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm just going to pray again before we have the readings this morning. Heavenly Father, may we be listening out to hear the words and the ways that you speak into our lives this morning. Guide our thoughts and guide our hearts to be attentive to your will for our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the first reading is in Habakkuk chapter 2, and we're starting from verse 6. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey, because you have plundered many nations. The peoples who are left will plunder you, for you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn, drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed human blood, you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to the wood, come to life, or to lifeless stones, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And the second reading is from Romans chapter 8, verse 18 to 23. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Thanks very much for being with us. And if you're new, it's yeah, it's great to have you with us this morning. Uh, my name's Jared. I have this. This is relevant. I'm not just going to share a bunch of random facts about me. But I've been married for ten years, and I've had kids for three years. And I noticed that things started to change in our marriage when we had kids. Prior to that point, we, Becky and I, we kind of, my wife, we, we agreed with everything. It seemed like we, we got on well. There wasn't any kind of, you know, well, sometimes we fought, but it was always her fault. And um, anyways, when we had kids, uh, suddenly these tensions started to arise because while we, we thought we could get on really well, suddenly we, we, we had different opinions about how our children should be raised. And we, the, we, our heart was really in these. Like I... Unlike my wife, I just feel that kids should be raised with some basic sense of morals and decency. Um, and one day, I came in to, to our living room and I saw my wife undermining all of this by listening with our poor young girls to Taylor Swift. And I was, I was outraged. I was morally outraged. I said we should be raising them on a steady diet of Bob Dylan and the Beatles and you are introducing this, this, now, and, and I have to say one other thing, and I know this is a very, you know, very stereotypical thing to say, but I live in a house with three women, okay? There's one man and three women. Do these women need to be listening to Taylor Swift? Because what is the content of almost all of those songs? It's the man's fault. <laughs> so that's what we're teaching. And so I was delighted, absolutely, I'm, just to be clear, I'm completely joking. But I was delighted on the new album, <laughs> to get a little bit of vindication, okay? And, and on this album, Taylor says, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. And I said, I know. At tea time, everybody agrees, I'll stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. I am totally joking, but I actually, uh, with the rest of this, but I really like that line. Um, and I think it's, it's a challenge for all of us. We are willing to look around at, and see so many different things but the hardest thing to do is to look in the mirror and to see yourself through for who you are. So this sermon might be a little bit challenging because we're all going to be invited to look in the mirror. And this really builds on the last two weeks. And so if you weren't with us, I almost want to say, uh, just stop listening now. And <laughs> because the la what we're in this book called Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is provocative if you come from a certain overly pious religious perspective, because Habakkuk has a man who is saying, my life isn't the way I would have wanted it to be. Things are falling apart around me, and he is coming, and he is bringing his complaint to God. He's basically saying the opposite of what Swift is saying. He's saying, it's not my fault, it's the Assyrians' fault, these people who have oppressed us, or then it's gonna be the Babylonians' fault, this other empire who comes, and perhaps it's even your fault, God. And his complaint is kind of, vindicated. It's justified. The fact that it's included in Holy Scripture has God's basically saying, you're reading your situation right. You, you have, your, your, your misery, your sadness is not something you deserved. It's something that's come upon you. But then things shift in chapter 2. And suddenly, we encounter the Babylonians. And the Babylonians, according to this text, are also going to experience sorrow and sadness and misery. Their life isn't going to turn out as they would have hoped. And yet, instead of saying, it's not your fault, it's someone else, the, 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 the passage basically says, look, look in the mirror. And so, um, this has to be approached with an incredible amount of care and, and humility this morning. Um, 
but I do want to I do want to ask us to be willing to ask the difficult question that sometimes when we look at the sorrow and the disappointment and the sadness in our life, when we look at the fact that our life is not what we meant it to be, we are meant to do exactly what Habakkuk did and say, I want to lament before God and I want to bring this injustice before him. And yet sometimes we're in a different situation and we're meant to, a- to ask, has my own actions in part contributed to this? There was an article in, in the Scientific American which kind of summarizes um, what they call the mindset of victimhood. And this language could be confusing because it could be thought to think that somehow they're wanting to say, to undermine the trauma that victims of abuse or violence undergo. That's not what, what, what the article is about. It's very affirming of uh, the situation that victims are in and how intractable the effects of trauma and abuse can be. But they talk about how there's kind of an, ex- an expansion, an inflation of this, this idea of being the victim that can be unhealthy, that can leave someone stuck. This is how they describe this mindset. An ongoing feeling that the self is a victim, which is generalizes, generalized across many kinds of relationships. You begin to think in all of your relationships you're a victim. As a result, victimization becomes a central part of the individual's identity. Those who have a perpetual victimhood mindset tend to have an, what they call external locus of control. They believe that one's life is entirely under the control of forces outside oneself, such as fate, luck, or the mercy of other people. In other words, one begins to feel that in every situation, one's difficulties, sorrows, and disappointments must be someone else's fault, and not in any way your own. Now, I would totally understand if some of us felt, why bring up this difficult, challenging idea? When we live in a world where there are there is, we, we hopefully have an increasing awareness of the pervasiveness of abuse and of the fact that, 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 that many of us, many people in this room will be victims of all kinds of manipulation or violence. Why ask this question? And the reason is because, as they go on to say, if we ignore the fact that actually we can adopt this victimhood mindset where we constantly blame the others, we are in desperate danger of becoming manipulators and abusers ourselves. So if we as a congregation, if we as a people want to take seriously the danger that we will harm, hurt, and manipulate one another, what can we do about that? How can we protect ourselves? How can I protect myself from the dark potential that I will manipulate and abuse others? Here's what this article suggests. Think of a famous example, maybe it's a politician or a religious leader, a famous example of someone that you consider a manipulative and perhaps emotionally or verbally abusive. In almost every case, these persons adopt the language of victimhood. Isn't that true? They will constantly say, the media is always after me. My party is always after me. Everyone is unfair to me. And what that leads to is is what they say, the other is perceived, this is what this mindset leads to, the other is perceived as threatening, whereas the self is perceived as persecuted, vulnerable, and morally superior. So we need to listen to to victims. We need to have humility and not assume that we know what's going on. But when it comes to ourselves, many of us also need to ask the question, am I actually hurting and manipulating others 
because I've adopted a worldview which thinks I am always the one who is persecuted and vulnerable and therefore I am in the morally superior situation rather than recognizing this dark potential we all have. So I feel that though this is gonna be hard to wrestle with for the sake of protecting one another and ultimately protecting ourselves, we have to face this. What having an entire book like Habakkuk, not just the one example of him coming to God complaining, or not just the one description of the Babylonians suggests to us, is that we need to realize that for most of us, not for all of us, sometimes we are a Habakkuk. Sometimes we have been hurt and wronged and injustice has been done to us, and we need to have, 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 have the, the, the space to come and to lament and to complain and to cry out. And yet most of us are also at times a Babylonian. The, the, the sadness and the disappointment and the frustration in our lives isn't just because of something that is done to us, it's because of a way of living we have adopted that is hurting others and that is also hurting ourselves. Most of the time we are not purely an innocent sufferer and most of the time we are not purely someone who is hurting others and creating our own sorrow but somewhere mixed in the middle. So as we go on in this sermon, as I invite you to reflect on this, I invite you to come to God and to ask him to reveal to you where you fit. And in most of us, as I said, are in the middle. I wanna, I wanna keep in mind this, the, the, a principle from this book. This book is called The Book of Pastoral Rule by Gregory the Great. It's an early church book that has, through the centuries, been a kind of foundation for spiritual direction, for helping people to grow what we would call discipleship, for sorting through your own relationship to God. And one of the things Gregory says is that one of the dangers of trying to help someone grow spiritually, one of the dangers of preaching or of discipling or whatever you wanna call it, is that oftentimes we, we, we pick the wrong remedy for what ails us. He goes through a whole bunch of different people and he basically says, we're not all the same. <laughs> Some of us, and to, to put it in this example, some of us, when we start saying that sometimes our sadness and misery and sorrow is not just because of what's done to us, it's also because of what we do, some of us are gonna be wrongly tempted to start taking responsibility for a bunch of stuff we are not responsible for. To start thinking, oh, I, you're absolutely right. To pull out the whip, start, start hitting ourselves in the back, be like, you're absolutely right. Everything in my life is my fault. I, I should just step up and do better and everything will be solved. And that would be the worst possible thing you could do. So don't hear that. But at the same time, the challenge is, some of us might have heard the last two weeks, heard this story of a person who is coming to God and saying, my life is a mess and it's their fault and their fault and your fault, and you might need the opposite medicine. You might need to look in that mirror and ask the honest question, though it is hard, have I actually contributed to my own sorrow and disappointment and disillusionment? So, what we're gonna do this week is kind of look at that other side. We're gonna look at these, what are called the woes. Um, Habakkuk describes the, the situation the Babylonians have got themselves into, the way their own actions have contributed to their sorrow and their disappointment and their misery. And we're gonna look in that mirror and think if it has something for each of us. So. The first reason that it says sometimes our sorrow or disappointment is produced by our actions is because usually, almost always in fact, sin's punishment is intrinsic. We oftentimes have a cartoonish view of divine judgment, thinking that if we talk about God judging wrongdoing or sin, 
That means God is some sort of Zeus-like figure throwing thunderbolts upon people that break the law. I would say the vast majority of the time when the Bible talks about sin's punishment, it basically says that sin's punishment is intrinsic. When you choose this way of living, the consequence is sort of built in. And there's multiple examples of this in this text. First, he says, you know, woe to you who piles up stolen goods. Basically, if, you try, if you're incredibly greedy and you cut corners and you do whatever it takes to get wealth, usually it will all come crumbling down at some point. And while you get ahead in the short term, it doesn't work in the long term. Does that always happen? No. But he's saying oftentimes greed bears the seeds of its own destruction within it. He goes on to give an even more provocative example with kind of multiple parts to it. He describes something that there's a few stories like this in the Bible, someone who is encouraging those around him to get drunk and then is taking advantage of them in, in the most heinous of ways. I think he's saying at least two things here. If, 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 if you are subtly trying to root for the downfall of others, if you are competitive, trying to get ahead, if, you, if there's a small part of you that wants someone else to fail so that you look better, that will ultimately rebound to your own shame. People will find you out. It won't work long term. And, 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 and likewise, he's saying if, if, if you think, as we so often do, that yeah, sure, plenty of other people drink too much and bad things happen to them, but I'll be fine. I can handle it. I'll never have any consequences. Oftentimes, that's not the case. This isn't saying drink is bad. Jesus, of course, uh, drank, but it's making a point about how so often we think our sin has no consequences and it ultimately leads us astray. This idea that the punishment for sin is usually inbuilt into the action itself runs all throughout the Christian tradition. There's a famous... Uh, the, the, the Divine Comedy, this kind of epic poem written by an Italian named Dante, is oftentimes seen as presenting this kind of cartoonish picture of the afterlife with, 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 with hell depicted in the most vivid of terms and heaven depicted in very physical terms. But when you actually look at what he's saying, he's interpreting these things metaphorically just like the Bible is. His description of the punishments uh, that, that, uh, of divine judgment is actually very much along these lines. For example, he describes a man who is overwhelmed with wrath and for eternity, he's being eaten up, he's being destroyed by his own uncontrollable anger and by the anger of others that is released upon him. C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce presents the same picture. It depicts the afterlife in terms of people being given over to their own desires, being enslaved by things which they think will bring them happiness and which ultimately leaves them empty. This is the first reason why sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes our sorrow is the result of our own actions. Second reason I, I, I observed in this text is that basically there's an image of the world, of creation itself, as being oriented a certain way. And when you live against that orientation, when you're opposed to it, life won't work out. It says, woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. It's almost like the physical cosmos itself rebels against us, turns against us when we reject God's way. The Stanley Hauerwas, the, the moral theologian and eth Christian ethicist, he has a famous metaphor, this, metaphor for this, describing going with the grain of the universe. Do any of you 
woodworkers that cut things know what that means to go with the grain of the, I have no idea what it means. But I think it means that if you cut with the grain, if you cut in the right way, you are, it will be, it'll work, it'll be smooth, it'll come together. Whereas if you try to go against the grain, if you try to reject the way the wood is set up, it'll be difficult. You might mar the product. Things won't work out. What this is suggesting is that this isn't an absolute rule. The Bible is full of people like Job who say, and who are presented as having done right, and yet their life is full of misery and sorrow. But oftentimes, there's a way the world is set up. And when we're wondering why, am I, why is my life working out? We need to ask, am I going with the way God has made things or am I going against it? If we find ourselves increasingly alone and lonely, sometimes that's because people are unkind and they've rejected us. Sometimes it's because we're judgmental. Sometimes it's because we're unteachable. When someone is going from one group to the next group to the next group and is constantly saying, this is what's wrong with this group and this is what's wrong with these people and here's how these people could be better and they end up alone. That is a tragedy. But the best way we can honestly offer them life is to tell them this isn't the way the universe works. When someone is manipulative and trying to get ahead and using people and they gain a position of power but they don't have any true friends, they're going against the way the world works. It's a tragedy. We should weep with them, but we should also tell them the way out involves changing your activity. Finally, the reason it says sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes our disappointment and sorrow is in part produced by our own actions is that we have the wrong idea of reward. We have the wrong idea of happiness in the first place. The text says, has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that they're working or laboring for the wrong things, that the nations will exhaust themselves for nothing, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What he's saying is that sometimes when we come to God and we say, again, not all the time, but sometimes when we come to God and we say, why have you not given me what I need to be happy? Why have you not given me this career or this position or, or this wealth or this status or this sort of relationship? Why are you keeping happiness from me? Part of the reason might be because we, he has a better idea what will truly fulfill us than we do. We are living for things, working for things that aren't truly going to last. And what he's offering us is to, to know and to participate in the glory and love of God himself. The Bible richly pleads with us in these terms again and again. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. The way I see this in my own life, I was speaking to someone in our church about this recently. I chose to, be, to live the life I am, to, to be a minister, to serve in this community, and 
while I had a list of, of priorities, here's the good things, this is why it's going to be good. High on that list was not the incredible financial opportunities that serving as a minister at Cornerstone would provide me. Our stock options are not great. And I don't want that kind of life. I don't think that kind of life sounds better. I think I get this. I would say, yes, no, no, money, nothing's wrong with money. Nothing's wrong with using a different career. But I don't want to live my life for how much money I can make, though money is fine. I think this is a better life for me and my family. And yet, if I'm honest, sometimes I see the holidays other people are going on. And I'm not sure this is the right choice. I, if I'm honest, I don't want to live for a position. I don't want to live for a title. I don't want to, but when I see the accolades my friends that graduated with me are getting, <laughs> I begin to wonder. Sometimes God doesn't give us those things because they're not what will really satisfy the soul of a human person. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation was subjected to futility. That, that is the key word. Sometimes we, we are living for things that we think will make us happy, and they are futile. They are vaporous. They are nothing. They are here today and gone tomorrow, and we think I can never be happy without those things. And God's saying, this is not even close to what you really want, to what your soul is really longing for. We live in a trivial culture, in a futile culture, which is constantly putting before our eyes things which entice us and claim to make us happy and which leaves us empty and which vanish in a moment. Pascal, uh, the, the French kind of theologian and philosopher, like he was a polymath, did all sorts of things, said this. Anyone who does not see the vanity, that's another word for that futility, the vanity of the world is very vain himself. And who does not see it but those preoccupied with the bustle, distractions, and plans for the future? But take away their distractions and you will see them wither from boredom. Then they feel their hollowness without understanding it because it is indeed depressing to be in a state of unbearable sadness as soon as you are reduced to contemplating yourself and without distraction from doing so. I've said this before, but I do think boredom is such a wonderful wake-up call for how futile the things we're living for often are. So often when we are bored, we turn away from something that is actually intrinsically valuable and worthwhile and turn to something that is trivial and meaningless and is actually very boring but distracting. Do you know what I mean? Are you ever, like, uh, this happens to me all the time. I'm researching something, but it's hard. I'm reading a great book. I'm, it's really important, but I get bored. And so what do I do? Go look on the most trivial, useless, time-wasting thing imaginable, Facebook. I turn from something incredibly valuable and interesting, but because I'm distracted, I look at something mundane and worthless. What, what, what do I do when, when, when my child comes to me and, and it says, and we've, 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 built, we've built the tower and then we've knocked it down and then we've built the tower and then we've knocked it down and then we've built the tower and we've knocked it down. And I said, I'm so bored. Do you know what will be more interesting than this beautiful child made in the image of God? My phone. Boredom is an indicator that we are so often distracted by futile, vaporous things which grab our attention, but don't actually satisfy. Sometimes, not all the time, the reason we think we are unhappy is because we are looking to the wrong sources of happiness. All right, who knows who this is? 
Oh, wow. Who knows? Does anybody know? Do you know, Colin? David Livingston, nice, okay, I was gonna, good. All of the Scottish people here should be ashamed that you didn't know that. We Americans, we're fine. We're totally, we don't know anything about this country. <laughs> David Livingston, and maybe, Dave, you know, David Livingston was a missionary. I know we look back on the, on, on the missionary movement now with somewhat, you know, mixed feelings. Um, so I'm not saying this was a man that was perfect. But when you look at what he did, David Livingston famously gave his entire life for, for Africa. He had malaria like 50 times or something. He lost family members. He was lost for, you know, famously for months and years. In, 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 and all of this to try to bring the gospel. He was an incredible opponent of the slave trade and of what colonialism actually became. And perhaps his most famous quotation, he went back to England and spoke at, I think it was Oxford or Cambridge. I can't remember which one. They're not St. Andrews, so who cares? And he said this. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Away with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause. In other words, yes, we give things up. Yes, we take our cross. Yes, there is a loss and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. This is where the passage ends. The passage ends summarizing this whole thing we've described of how sometimes we feel that we can never be happy without something and yet that thing is actually leading us away from satisfaction and joy and happiness using the category of idolatry, saying what you're actually living for is an idol and idols are so destructive for two reasons. For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. What makes an idol an idol is it will never tell you it's your fault. It can't speak back. You can trust it with the most false form of trust. You can trust it to only tell you what you want to hear, not tell you what you need. The other thing about an idol is that it is incredibly needy and grasping. It tells you only what you want to hear, but usually what that means is if you did a bit more, if you worked a bit harder, if you labeled a bit better, then everything would be out and you're caught in an endless cycle of this idol sucking you dry and leaving you empty. In contrast, before the Lord, let the earth be silent. We don't just speak to him, he speaks to us. He is the mirror. He shows us things sometimes we don't want to see, and yet, unlike the idol, while he will tell us the truth, he is also unendingly and infinitely good, not trying to take something from you, but only to give to you. And it is one such as this that you can be open with, that you can come and say, though my sorrow is not purely and entirely because of what others have done, but also because of what I have done with this one, you know he is unendingly for you. And he comes to you not to shame you or to condemn you, but to welcome you in. And what he ultimately says when we come before him with silence, as the passage in Romans continue, is that we are to be adopted as sons and daughters. 
that when he invites us to come for us, he comes with the posture of the father and the story of the prodigal son, with arms always open, never to condemn, not saying you can come back into the house when you've earned your keep, when you've become a hired man, when you've sorted yourself out. This gives us the courage and the boldness to be able to look in that mirror and to know that even before we've sorted ourselves, we're already welcomed back in with nothing but an embrace. We're gonna have a time of confession just now. We're gonna have a time of silence before him. And I would invite you to, if 